The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 73 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own and not that my president or past employers. I've never disclosed any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So we had a great episode last week once again, talking about current events, so Tom and I just having fun with it, and uh, we're figuring a lot of stuff out about the show, actually, about the way we format the show and the way we're going to format it in the future. we got a lot of great ideas, and we're getting a lot of great feedback on these episodes. I mean, the numbers are up. Uh, our listeners seem to really like the mix of Tier 1 guests talking about specific topics and us sort of unpacking current events as they unfold. So we've covered a lot of topics last week. Uh, my co-host and Chief Security Officer of BitGo, Tom Pager, and I, broke down the current state of bug bounties in the industry, uh, which is always very interesting because even though I think some of the complexities that presented themselves at Uber some time ago, and we did a couple episodes on that, they still exist today. They still exist uh, with the many bug bounty policies that companies are using, and, but companies are paying millions of dollars a year in these bug bounty awards, and the policies are sort of, I don't know if they're really squared away as they should be, and that's what's really causing the problem but they're using these bug bounty awards as part of their threat and vulnerability management programs to make sure they cover all their bases. And sure enough, they're finding hundreds, if not thousands, of vulnerabilities in their systems. I think uh, what uh, I think what Kareem said. He was on the show. Uh, you know, uh, again, I just played a, a uh, an encore episode. Where he was like eighteen to twenty-one million vulnerabilities in all these systems out there. That's the average, and some of the large organizations. So in some cases you know, forking out these very large lump sums awards. Uh, I think, you know, they even paying for college tuition at some point, we mentioned last week, and some for some of the younger, younger folks uh, is a good thing. So bug bounties are still becoming more prominent in the cybersecurity culture, especially, I guess, in the big tech space. But we also continued our discussion on the cybersecurity voting systems around the world. Last week, focusing on some news reports out of Israel that some of their voting systems are vulnerable to an attack, at least one Israel report, Israeli reporter who is also a technical analyst suspects that one of their voting systems has already been compromised and that the perpetrators possibly altered 
the outcome of a previous election. So the Israeli government is disputing this claim. I think, uh, you know, it's a serious issue, folks. It's a serious, serious political business issue uh, that affects almost every aspect of our life. I mean, we're going to keep talking about this issue on the show and keep the focus on the security of our voting systems because I really believe, I really truly believe that we need to secure a better confidence. We need to instill confidence in our voting systems. We need to restore that confidence in our voting systems. Even if a breach of our systems doesn't even occur, people think that it could occur or could it have occurred, then it's just going to cause internal strife in our nation and uh, just serve to separate us further instead of bringing us together. And uh, look, I'm a patriot. I like to think I'm a patriot. This, is, this kind of stuff really gets me fired up. This is just one example of just how important cybersecurity is to our nation, folks. And, you know, Tom and I also gave our analysis on the, the role of social media companies uh, and, and, the, and the role that they have versus the role that the government has in policing social media platforms for the presence of foreign intelligence agencies that are there for the sole purpose of attempting to influence and divide societies of free people, including, of course, the United States. So I just think that's just, a, you know, that's another controversial hot topic in the news lately. And I don't foresee that conversation going away anytime soon. The problem's too big. It's not going to be solved overnight. And we really need all the ideas we can get. So, and then lastly, last week, the theme of last week's show was uh, actually talked about on the third segment of the show. And that was, where did all the stolen Equifax data go? And then, so, you know, it's funny because I saw a comment on the promotional post of uh, last week's episode that the co-founder of Task Force 7, Andy Benello, shared. And I'm, I'm going to be introducing you to Andy tonight for the first time. And the comment was from Robert Bigman. He's a security consultant, but he's also the former chief information security officer of the CIA. And his comment was, was this one line. WC43 and W8, Dongcheng, Beijing, China. <laughs> and so, you know, I think this, uh, I, I think it was interesting. I would imagine that this is a common sentiment across intelligence folks in the industry, but very, very interesting folks. Where did all the stolen Equifax data go? And so I think this is a really cool episode to listen to. After all, this is, uh, this is what everybody's talking about. So if you haven't heard last week's episode, take a listen when you get a chance. It's definitely worth your time. Tune in to last week's episode of Task Force 7 Radio. That's episode number 72 with guest host and chief security officer of BitGo, Tom Pagler. So the February 2019 Encore episode of TF7 Radio is called, What is the Future of Bug Bounties? And I sort of, you know, mentioned that uh, earlier uh, in the segment. And the, the numbers are just awesome with this episode. It's one of the most listened to episodes in TF7 Radio history. And I decided to drop that episode last month, again, because it was timely in terms of our update on bug bounties in the industry. And it was a good call. It was a good call because, uh, you know, uh, I, it got a lot of great response. I mean, it, it was, I think it was probably listened to more this time than it was when it was initially released, which is fantastic, especially with our recent conversations and analysis on the Switzerland government bug bounty uh, report that we were talking about on their e-voting systems and the seemingly record number of bug bounty awards given by big tech companies in 2018. So give it a listen on your favorite playback medium if you haven't heard it already. That's the February 2019 Encore episode, What is the Future of Bug Bounties on TF7 Radio? Very popular show, folks. So if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe just someone sent you this link to this episode, 
You might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 episodes on playback. we got a new website, tf7radio.com, so check that out. That's tf7radio.com. It used to be taskforce7radio.com. I don't have to redirect up yet. I know I keep saying that, but I'll get around to it, I promise. So if you, if you go to our website and hit the subscribe tab at tf7radio.com, it's at the top, top right of the page. It takes you to all your playback mediums and also gives you the option to subscribe to the show right from the TF7 website, which is really what we prefer you do because this way you get all the TF7 radio updates right from the site. And as the site gets more robust, then we start having conversations and we start putting show notes up there. And, uh, you know, I'm going to get my sponsors up there. It's just going to be fantastic. And we'll have a lot of great stuff for you. So don't forget, there's, there's now 10 different options to get your TF7 radio fix. And the newest one is castbox.fm. So that's castbox.fm. That's being the newest one that's out there right now. So we're everywhere, folks. You really can't miss us. If you just Google Task Force 7 Radio, you will get all your options. I promise you. Check us out. TF7 Radio Playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, please don't forget to subscribe no matter what medium you're on. So we have another great show for you this week on Cybersecurity Current Events. Guest co-host of TF7 Radio and Chief Security Officer of BitGo, Tom Pater, is going to be joining me once again this week. Everyone knows who Tom is by now. Tom, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me again, George. Uh, my pleasure to be here. It's always great to have you. And we're also going to be joined by a new guest host, former Secret Service agent and co-founder of Task Force 7, Mr. Andrew Benillo. Andy, welcome to the show, brother. Thanks, my man. It's great to be here. Tom, always good to share the stage with you, buddy. Um, yeah, looking forward to it. You guys have been doing a great job knocking it out. So I'm excited to be, uh, be on the show with you guys. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. And this is going to be really cool as we go forward because we're having a lot of fun with these episodes. And, uh, you know, I think this, is, this format is really working with the, with the listeners, too. So, um, look, guys, I'm determined to keep the focus on securing our election systems. And, you know, I started out. Uh, last couple episodes, you know, talking about the elections and the security around our election systems. And sure enough, there was this big article from Joseph Marx last week in the Washington Post on how Democrats are going to be making election security a campaign issue. And so this just sort of prompts me to believe that they don't think they can have election security unless they are elected. So there's going to be another, you know, some more turmoil, of course, and some more drama around the security of the 2020 elections, unfortunately. But the article basically stated unequivocally that Russian hacking had upended Hillary's, uh, Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign, even though Mueller's documents basically say they affected both you know, campaigns. They were just trying to stir turmoil between the two parties and, and create uh, internal strife in America, which they did a pretty good job of doing obviously, and it's already impacting the way 2020 Democrats are campaigning this time around. So the article focused on the fact that election security is already emerging as a key talking point on the campaign trail, as Democrats are offering up their policies to secure votes from potential tampering and tout their own cybersecurity records. This is obviously a sign that they think could be a strong wedge issue against President Trump implying that Trump is really not concerned about election security issues right now and the current administration really isn't paying attention to it. So this issue has been politicized already and it's just going to get worse. Tom, your analysis? I agree with you. It's going to get worse. I mean, uh, in, in the United States, you know, we, we pride ourselves in a, a, you know, being represented by people that we elect. 
And if you do not believe in the uh, electoral process, then you pretty much under undermine the entire government structure we operate under. So I, I do think that you're going to see Democrats out absolutely pushing this. Um, I, I do think the Republicans are going to have to get more aggressive and start showing um, ways that they're they're moving forward on this and, and making it so it is a secure election, uh, just to just to calm it down, right? To get the public to to actually believe in the system and, and feel confident again. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think you know the Republicans are going to have to have a response to this. Andy, what do you say? I think so. I think you know, there's one component that's overlooked, I think, in the article, which is, you know, the upcoming elections in, with regards to local government, right? So we're focused so nationally, we're focused so heavily on the national stage, international stage, but this starts early on, right, in, in local government, uh, which we all know those are the harder, tar- the softer targets, right? So I think it's going to be interesting to see, especially when you get to the primaries, right? New Hampshire is a democratic state, right? One of the first uh, to have um, a primary, right? Almost sets the stage for the election. Right. In some instances. So I think that's going to be a, a topic of debate that's going to come up. And how do we increase the security around uh, local elections that are probably in the process of being tampered with and potentially undermined today as we speak prior to the national stage? So I think, you know, apparently these, some of these Democrats, uh, the, the candidates specifically, are taking a somewhat radical stances to solve the problem of election hacking with Senator Kamala Harris saying that we should shift to paper ballots for elections. And, you know, she made this a key talking point at a, at a breakfast last week in New Hampshire when she was speaking. And she thinks this is the way to go. And, and this is in her own words that Russia can't hack a piece of paper. And it's like, you know, it's kind of funny. We always talk about those old systems that we use that are, you know, not modernized yet, but they don't, they're, they're not as susceptible to hacks as some of our new, more modernized systems because these emerging technologies come along with a lot of risk. So the crowd obviously erupted in, you know, in approval of her statement. And I think even the mention of Russia at this point, this gets people all riled up, people, especially when you talk in politics. So then there's Senator Amy Klobuchar. I, I, I always say that name, Klobuchar, right? Do I have that right, Tom? Klobuchar. I think it's Klobuchar, yeah. Yeah, Klobuchar. So who made the case for upgrading voting machines at a town hall in New Hampshire last week? And so she stated something like, we all know that, you know, right now that cybersecurity is the next arena for warfare. And this is something that we all know in the the industry already. And we've known this for years. And she followed up by making a mention of the bill to upgrade cybersecurity on our election systems that is equal to the cost of 3% of one aircraft carrier. Now, I think she was trying to make a point, and I'm not sure if the 3% resonated with some of the people because it's only 3%, right? But everyone knows that aircraft carriers cost a lot of money. They're immensely uh, expensive, and they're costing in the tens of billions of dollars. And after all, a small number of a very big number is still a very big number. So, Tom, what do you think? Uh, I, I think there's a couple of things I want to answer here. Number one, as I said earlier, I still think our electoral system is our primary thing to keep us as a dem- democracy that we all value. So I think it's a great point. Only 3% of an aircraft carrier is spent on protecting this. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I mean, this should be our primary thing we protect because this is what fundamentally we are. Uh, the other thing I, I think here is 
I do agree with you, paper is not the answer, right? We've seen paper break down. We've seen issues like you just can't count it right. At some point, they're going to have to, what do we need to get an abacus and, and you know, be counting with that? So it's not going to work, right? Yeah. So what you need to do is at some point, it's going to go, yeah, yeah. It's going to get a big chalkboard market. You know, yeah. it's, it's not going to work, right? I mean, we, we know ultimately it has to go electronic. So I do agree we need money and we need to like start taking it serious. We need to start looking at um, a standard it's something new. And, and I, I think, Andy, you made a good point. Like, it starts at the local level. And the local level, they're doing their own thing. Like, we need to just get a federal system. This is how voting is done. There should be kind of some kind of tracking system. I, as a voter, should be able to vote and then go see what my vote looked like. Maybe it's mailed to me at the end of, you know, at the, end of the year in my tax form to confirm that I actually got what I voted for. So that way, we as people can look at it. And it, maybe it's something we could get some an expert from blockchain to look at, right? Maybe there's a blockchain we create where it's like, I don't know who voted for what, but I know myself and what's out there. It's a public facing blockchain. You can't mess up. And I know I can go look and see that my vote is exactly what I voted. I don't, and I can see other votes out there and I can see everybody's votes. I just don't know whose vote belongs to who, but I can see and count if I wanted the votes myself and I can go see and say, Hey, wait a minute. How is it that, you know, so-and-so won in California when, you know, the public ledger disputes that. And then you've got tons of eyes looking at it, counting it. And it's just much dip, more difficult to get into there. But again, it's going to take some costs. It's going to take some overhaul. And, and I really think this should be federally pushed down because we don't want small governments looking at different people. Like, it just doesn't scale, right? Just get, get a system and we can all go and, and see what we voted for. You know, that's a really interesting. That's some, uh, that's some interesting points that you have there, especially with using blockchain and some other uh, technologies um, to secure these votes because. I'm not sure if she got her point across. I mean, Andy, do you think that she was able to make the point that a significant commitment in terms of dollars and resources has to be made to secure our election systems? I, I don't think so, right? I think it's a good soundbite, right? I, I just think it's hard to, for people to truly understand what it takes to protect these digital systems and the networks that you know, we're protecting every day, right? And not just the technology and the spend, but getting the entire ecosystem to talk the same language and have the right processes and, and, and everything, right? And I think, you know, and depending on what we go to, we decide to introduce here, I think we're also, you know, kind of going back to that local feel of this, right? You know, once that new upgraded election terminal is put out, there's going to be somebody that's going to go rip that thing out and they're going to go do, you know, reverse engineering on that thing. And they're going to bang away at it to figure out what the new technology is and how to break it, right? So, you know, George, on you know, previous episodes, you, you know, you've talked about, um, you know, the benefits of physical security, right? I mean, there's going to be no shortage of, you know, physical threat, potential extortion at, at multiple levels, um, you know, regardless of the technology we deploy. But I think, you know, she's got a good soundbite, but I think ultimately it's going to take a cohesive program to, to solve this. So all six U.S. senators that threw their hats into the ring so far have been banging the drum on uh, cybersecurity. They've all co-sponsored bills aimed on protecting election systems against the Russian hackers, right? So the article sort of implies that this is a major shift from 2016 when there really wasn't a focus on cybersecurity issues and it was basically just the use of encrypted communications and the whole, you know, uh, the government versus uh, Apple and issue with getting into the phones. And no one really seemed to take a really forcible position on cybersecurity really make a difference. But the fact that they're talking about it now is a sign Democrats think a strong cybersecurity position, in my mind, is at least in part necessary to win. And it's also perhaps the most telling sign that a cybersecurity uh, policy, maybe uh, now widely accepted, and might be, this might be a mainstream national issue right now, but 
I think that the article might go too far when it suggests these type of things. Andy, is, is cybersecurity an accepted mainstream national issue just because Kamala Harris says so? I, I don't think it's because she says so. I think because, you know, the, the nation recognizes, you know, the majority of Americans' credit cards have already been stolen and reissued multiple times. Their bank accounts have had potential tampering, right? There's all sorts of other examples outside of the election protection, right, that, that kind of highlight, well, this is a national issue. Um, but I think what's interesting here, and, and George, you know, we've had this discussion, you know, kind of off the air, right, where uh, you don't see TV shows in sci- on cyber because the news cycle is focusing up and Hollywood writers can't keep up, Right. So uh, to, to, to say that Camilla Harris is the, the, you know, putting this on the map, I think, is, is, is way off. Yeah, I mean, Tom, what do you think? I, I mean, I think that this absolutely, though, the politics behind it is going to put attention on it, right? I mean, um, we all know politicians need to get elected to be effective. Um, this is definitely an area that we can see Democrats can attack Republicans on, and Republicans are ultimately going to have to defend. So we're just going to see a lot of, um, campaign around this, a lot of uh, movement around this. I think this is something that's going to give us a lot of momentum that's going to at least result in, like you said, uh, campaigns that are built on this. So therefore, there's going to have to be some kind of action at the end of it. So no matter what's going to write, it's going to either result in better policies, more funding, something. So we're definitely seeing something happen here. You know, from my view, I really think that it's uh, the more focus on cybersecurity, the better. And if the, the politicians are out there, you know, banging the cybersecurity drum and saying, hey, we need to invest more resources and more capital uh, uh, into cybersecurity. And I think that's a good thing for the country as a whole. I mean, you know, as we talked about on previous episodes, we need a national strategy. I think we need someone in charge. You and I, Tom, talked about it last week. I think uh, that we need, you know, someone actually uh, basically uh, collaborating and, and sharing with everyone and sort of coordinating all of our efforts across both the public and the private sector, really, um, I, I tend to think this is just politics, you know, an easy way to attack Trump at this point for not condemning the Russian government over their interference, or I, I should say attempted interference, I should say, with the 2016 election, depending on, you know, what, uh, what you're actually reading on the Internet. But uh, Marx followed up on this article the next day, and he came out with another article in the Washington Post, and he basically said that California wants to let political candidates use campaign cash to secure their devices. So I thought this was pretty interesting, Tom, your analysis. I think it's great. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's showing that this is really important. It makes it so that if anybody is running for office, it may be not as well-funded as, uh, as others. Um, you can make secure, security a, a primary part of your campaign, right? I mean, we all want, when, when they run for camp, you know, in the campaign, they need staffers, they need people to help with marketing, all this stuff. Um, you know, this allows the underdog or the less funded or the, the, the less wealthy candidate um, be able to take and ensure that they're not uh, a victim of a cyber attack. And I, th- I, think it's, I think it's actually a great thing. And then I, I think the bill actually says any leftover campaign funds can be used to continue to secure the candidate, the elected candidate's devices, uh, not, none, none of their staff or anything. So during the campaign, it can be used for staffers, all this stuff to make sure it's a fair campaign. But then once they're in, they can use the funds to continue to secure devices and stuff. I think it's actually great. It just shows that, you know, cybersecurity is real, that this is definitely an issue that we have to protect against. And this allows, um, it just puts it in the spotlight and allows basically a fair campaign. You know, I think, I think this sort of underscores the, the increasing realization that protecting elections from foreign influence can't stop with just the election systems. And I broke it down last week and 
my analysis in terms of we're looking at social media accounts, we're looking at, you know, the influence of foreign intelligence agencies on, you know, social media platforms um, with, with folks. Um, but it's also the staffer's devices, right? The devices, they're awful vulnerable entry point for hackers who then, you know, propagate throughout the entire network of the, of the campaign, which is another problem. And I think we talked a little bit about that in Israel. There were some uh, accusations recently that one of the campaigns were, were, uh, were compromised and some information was, was taken or uh, uh, changed in some way. So I think this is a big, big problem as well. Uh, Andy, what are your, what are, what are your thoughts? I, I do, George. I think, you know, most candidates, and, and look, we've all had the, the honor and privilege to see the electoral process up close and personal, right, from our Secret Service days. And, you know, when you start to see a candidate come onto the, onto the scene, you know, their, their staffs are smaller, the amount of technology they use is, is small, um, you know, and, and, and not necessarily managed the same way it would be once they're, um, you know, a candidate with Secret Service protection and, and, you know, all the money behind them, right? And so I think, you know, kind of going back to that local example where once they become, a, a, you know, someone on the political scene that's going to be up for election uh, or they join the campaign, I think that's when the, the targeting is going to start. And, and obviously their personal devices, their home networks. So there's a lot of, I think, vulnerability that exists early in the candidate's process um, that, that, doesn't, that could be merged into or brought into their larger campaign uh, to, to kind of go to your Israel example. You know, Tom, you were talking about before that this should be a, you know, a federally funded uh, campaign, you know, in terms of the security that needs to go across all the election systems. But if, if California goes ahead and approves this, where they can use the campaign money to screw their own devices, the people that are working in the campaign, do you think other states across the country are going to follow? Yeah, definitely. I think that this is how you start it. And this is, uh, you, you know, others will follow it. And then uh, ultimately, hopefully it'll result in the federal policy or something where they will allow... You know, when you, you do your taxes, you can give a dollar to, you know, uh, campaigns to make them equal, whatever. There might be something that says, you know, give 25 cents to cybersecurity across for everybody, right? I, I could see that happening. How well spent do you think that money's going to be? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> the, choices that, the choices that are made in security systems, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure that gives, you know, voters a warm, fuzzy feeling. I, I, I agree with you that like, you know, and Andy's made this point, you know, we all could say this, like it, it's difficult. Cybersecurity is very difficult. Um, you just, there's just so many moving targets, so much stuff to do, but not doing anything is not any, it's not good. Right. We, we have to start somewhere. We at least have to start getting some funding. We have to start thinking about this. Like, like we talked about in other shows, we're going to get ahead of cybersecurity of some sort. We need to start taking this serious. We need to make it so that, you know, there is a path. Maybe somebody, starts to go, you know what, I actually want to protect elections. I'm a cyber expert. Now there's a job out there to do this federally. I mean, this is a challenge somebody might want to take on. I mean, these are the kind of things you just have to start somewhere. I do agree with you. Like we've seen it over and over, a lot of waste in the government, a lot of things. But I still think that we have to figure something out. We just can't say, well, it didn't work in the past. Let's not do it. Yeah, and the more the awareness, more awareness, the better. I think we're on the right track. Uh, we just need to keep finding the right vehicle to get in front of everybody to, to continue to make this a national topic. All right, guys, we've got to transition into a commercial break here. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at TF7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. 
I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for a few minutes, and then I'll be right back with our guest hosts, Tom Pager and Andy Bonello, to talk about some more pressing cybersecurity issues of the day. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use, making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skill shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash task force seven. The rules of enterprise security have changed. Your employees work remotely. Their devices access corporate data in the cloud. Phishing and other threats are intensifying. Traditional perimeter-based security is no longer enough to keep your enterprise safe. You need a new approach that protects your organization from the outside in. Lookout Post Perimeter Security enables protection at the endpoint and establishes continuous conditional access to data based on risk so you can protect your mobile workforce against phishing and other new world threats. Now you can secure the post-perimeter world. Visit lookout.com forward slash task force seven to learn more today. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Reedus. 
If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with my guest host of TF7 Radio, former electronic crimes task force agents with the United States Secret Service, Tom Pagler and Andy Benello. So, so guys, SC Magazine comes out with this very interesting article last week by Robert Abel that reports that digital extortionists are offering six-figure salaries, six-figure salaries to accomplices who can assist them in committing all kinds of cyber crime and causing all kinds of chaos out there on, on the internet, right? So these cyber criminals are promising salaries of up to $360,000 a year to accomplices who seek to extort high net worth individuals such as C-level executives and lawyers and doctors and dentists and things like that, right? So this article states that these bribes can even be even higher. They can even be higher for those who have a network management and penetration testing skills, programming skills, right? With you know, one threat actor willing to pay an equivalent of $768,000 annually with add-ons and a final salary after the second year of over a million dollars. So it's like $1,080,000 per year. And this is according to a recent report by digital shadows. And I don't know that everyone out there listening right now understands the amount of resources and the flexibility and agility and the money that these people have just to make your life miserable. Tom, this could be terrifying for people that this happens to. Oh yeah, this is this uh, we're seeing it happen. I mean, sh- sure, people see on the news. Uh, we can talk about another one, but like even Bezos at Amazon has ha- uh, had some recent issues with with stuff getting uh, basically the fight with him and the Enquirer over over some uh, compromising photos and things. Um, you know what's even scarier here, though, George is we all run security teams. How hard is it to recruit in the right security experts competing with legitimate other companies? Now you throw this out there. I mean, it seems to be that much more difficult, right? This, this is uh, not only competing with each other. Now we're competing with this uh, underground that's uh, becoming just much more organized and much more lucrative. Yeah. So, I mean, Andy, are you shocked by the amount of money that criminals are getting paid to collude and collaborate with other criminals to victimize executives around the world? Or, you know, what do you think about this? Look, that's a ton of cash, bro, right? It is. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, that's a lot of money. It is. Uh, I mean, I, I think what I'm surprised at is, is how, as we progress in society within the digital age, like how, more, how many more ways criminals are able to start to monetize, you know, the evolution. You know, I think we've seen, you know, all of us have seen in our investigations the kind of the evolution of this problem, right? But, you know, now being able to target um, high net worth individuals and pay people that have really you know close proximity or access to these folks, whether digitally or physically, and being able to convince them to to take sides with them, um, it takes more than just money, right? It's in, and even technical acumen, but there's a mentality that has to go around with that. So I think this also shows the importance of your insider threat programs and understanding people's motivations and what drives them and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, the amount of money I think we're talking here is it's, it's really high. Yeah, it's definitely a motivator for some people who might be on the on the uh, on the fence, right? On you know what they want to do. If you know some of these people out there have legitimate jobs with technical skills that you know may not have like the perfect moral compass, you know, <laughs> in the world. But this could be this could be an influencer, and even for someone 
like myself, who has a, a ton of experience, like you folks do, uh, in, in, in you know, electronic crimes task forces and working with the Secret Service and seeing and, and, and investigating cyber organized crime groups, that's a lot of money for a con to contract someone out for. So I think, you know, th that's definitely a problem. And this article quotes a report that's, uh, that's called A Tale of Epic Extortions. <laughs> Not proportions, but extortions, and how cyber criminals monetize our online exposure. I mean, just the title itself is a, is a little frightening to me, I, I think. And I think to the average person, it must be, you know, a little terrifying because the report details how digital extortionists are really monetizing unwanted online exposures, such as compromised credentials, your vulnerabilities, there's sensitive data out there, and these explicit images and these sextortion attacks that are happening. And, and you know, um, we referred to it before. But, you know, these ex experienced extortionists are promising sal salaries of more than $30,000 just through tutorials and the recruitment claims that new recruits can make a dis decent living through these cyber sextortion scams, right? I got a problem, uh, trouble saying that, sextortion scams, right? Directed at these high net worth individuals. So if you got a high profile on the internet, you're a high net worth individual, you're an executive, maybe you're a dentist, a doctor, a lawyer, you got a, a professional job, and you need to protect your brand, you're a main target. And they're doing this while promising more for those with greater technical skill sets. And this becomes almost a competition in some respects for those who have that not the best moral compass, as I said, this really shouldn't affect anybody's ability to make a right decision between right and wrong, obviously. Um, but, uh, you know, these extortionists are adopting these crowdfunding models now, which they uh, allow the victims to raise funds through the general public rather than relying on the victim themselves to actually pay the ransom demand. So they're actually giving you an out as a victim and say, well, if you can't, if you can't get all of it, you can do like a crowdfunding exercise to get the rest of the money. I mean, Andy, how crazy is that? I think it's pretty crazy. I mean, I think, you know, it also shows that, you know, whether you actually did something or did not, right, you know, and you put your data out on the internet in, in a, in a non-flattering way, or if you didn't, um, you know, in some instances, you're going to be a target and whether the public opinion is going to weigh in on you, right? Um, regardless of if it was you or if it was an actual extortion attempt where um, people fabricated the story. Uh, and then to say, okay, well, what company do I work for? What's my public opinion of me out there? And then will the public want to get behind me to help pay me because they like me, right? Or do, are they going to bash me even further, right? I think is a, a very interesting phenomenon that we're seeing here. Yeah, I mean, Tom, what do you say? I, I, you know, you got to wonder, okay, the part of being victimized is the fact that you make public things that someone doesn't want to be made public. These are private either pictures or information or data so I don't know how crowdfunding really works with that. You know, hey, you know, help me out over here. There's a bunch of pictures that someone has of me that I don't want anybody to see. And, and so they, they raise money. I mean, what's, what's your analysis? I, I think that uh, I, I, the crowdfunding is an interesting idea, right? And then you hope that, uh, uh, I guess the, the hope there is that people do that so, you know, we, we, we can protect each other. But I, I don't see it really working. Um, I, I honestly think, you know, unfortunately in, in these regards, I mean, I, I think, we're going to see this happen for a while that at some point it's going to just kind of get numb and it's going to be where, you know, it's happened to enough people. It's just going to be kind of expected that it happens and almost like um, to a point where if it doesn't happen to you or are you normal kind of thing. Right. So I, I think that this is, you know, for now you're going to see a lot of this and it's, it's going to be unfortunate for those who are kind of probably the first ones attacked, but over time you're going to see some just saying, you know what, fine, just, just go, you know, 
give expose it, whatever. I'm not going to pay you. And if, if we all start doing that and, and everyone just says, okay, fine, I'm just going to take the lumps, you know, go ahead, expose it. Uh, at some point there won't be a market to do this and it'll go away. I mean, unfortunately it's just hard for the first ones that it's happening to Cause it's like you said, this could be pictures. This could be information you don't want out there. This could be something that you're embarrassed by. It could just be so many things. And, and you know, it could be something that you did uh, illegal and you might be facing, you know, jail time yourself that they found out about. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's best to just say, you know what, uh, too bad I did that. Let's take my lumps and, uh, you know, not, not pay it out because then there won't be a market. Yeah, you know, I agree. And, and, you know, it's just, this is just absolutely terrible in my mind. And for, and for some folks out there listening right now thinking, well, this doesn't happen too much and it's not going to happen to me. Between July 2018 and February 2019, that's about an eight month period, researchers counted 89,000, that's 89,000 email recipients as sextortion attempts, 792,000 total attempts against target emails, and 92 Bitcoin addresses that received payments of $332,000 of extortion payments. So, you know, when I think about this, you know, you say 89,000 email recipients, I, I bet you that's just a fraction. That's just a fraction of the number. That's, the, that's what researchers were able to uncover. And I, you know, I, I tend to think that the number is much higher. High Tech Bridge CEO, Ilya Kolochenko, said that these numbers undermine the long-term sustainability of commercially motivated bug bounties. And of course, we can't get away from that. And then what we'll see is a likely decline of skilled people involved in crowd security testing as they can either find a highly competitive salary in the industry or alternatively shift to the dark side. Now, you know, uh, Tom, you know, this is, this is what we're talking about the last few weeks, right? There goes your, your bug bounty. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think this is exactly what we talked about. The bug bounty programs need to you know, be invested in more and more and have more money. Uh, in there because I think you got to compete with this, right? So this is this natural competition. I also think to my last point, um, if you do go to the dark side and you say, okay, I'm going to do this, at some point, it, the dark side's probably not going to last forever, right? I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, it's a hot thing now. As I said, you do it too much. At some point, it just becomes numb. People stop paying the extortion of fees. So you can make a lot of money maybe now very short term, but then in the long term, is it going to still be there? Um, and to your point, yeah, maybe you get tempted and stuff, but once you start going to the dark side, it's, it's much more difficult to get back on the, on the light side because a lot of the, uh, the roles will require clearances at some point and, and background checks and stuff like that. So once you go to the dark side and do that, it's, you, you, have actually shut doors on yourself for the future. So I think, yeah, so I think it, the best thing to know is, okay, no matter what, that might be paying more right now but making it clear that, hey, come to the light side, pay more in the light side, as we talked about in the last segment, you know, offer more cybersecurity um, jobs through the government, things like that. So it's, it's just kind of like, okay, I'm not going to make a million dollars a year right now, but I make, make half a million dollars a year for the next 10 years. That's a lot better than a million dollars a year for maybe one or two, right? So it's that, that kind of thought. And, and again, I think that it just means the bug bounties just have to be a little bit stronger. You have to you, you, you know your competition. Sometimes you got to pay more, right? I mean, there are times I pay more for certain positions because more and more people are hiring security engineers and stuff like that. So sometimes I have to just raise my salary for my security engineers in order to compete. And in this case, you know, the, the dark market is uh, raising the cost. So just raise the cost for it. Maybe bug bounty is more expensive and physicians pay more. Andy, how pathetic is this? That it's not, it's not choosing between right and wrong now. It's just choosing who pays more, right? I mean, how, I just can't believe what it's come to now in the tech industry. We're having these conversations about how commercially viable 
these motivated uh, bug bounties are anymore. I mean, what do you, what do you say? And look, I think it, uh, my high school guidance counselor told me that you can't change the home, right? So I think it all goes back to, you know, how are you brought up and kind of what's going to be the driver for you. And ultimately people are going to make those life decisions and and live with consequences. Right. And so, I mean, I think it's, it's, uh, it's sad to see that, you know, we could be getting to that tipping point, but I I like to have a little more faith in the, in in the human race as we continue to grow here. But uh, ultimately, yeah, right. The fact that they were at that tipping point, uh, it's scary. Yeah. I mean, it all comes out when you're sitting on that five hour polygraph. That's right. That's right. That's right. (laughs) There's no hiding. Um, so the article goes on to say that the, the shadow economy is not subject to government control or regulation anymore. And, you know, Kolochenko said that. I mean, I don't know. She was referring to the fact that criminals were restrained by money laundering difficulties in cyberspace in the past. But with the rise of cryptocurrencies, virtually any illicit income of any size can be legalized without any legal ramifications. And I don't think, look, I think that it's might be worded a little, you know, wrong i i look personally i never saw that there was a big problem with the criminals being able to move money i mean i, I just <laughs> never did right agree so, yeah. you know it's like, you know, yeah. a little like, i don't know <laughs> his comments were right and we're talking about you know like there's some control and regulation that the criminals were ever susceptible to yeah i, I think the only oh so going to andy no this like, yeah the only control was really more around what the what the underground put on itself <laughs> more so than what, yeah. what governments around the world put on them yeah, well, and I think I think uh, George. I mean, you know, we, we've seen lots of different types of even electronic uh, transfers before. I think eagle was a big one. You can read up on the case there. You know, stuff like that. There's always been mechanisms to move money. Uh, it was cash. It was different things. Um, I, I do think that one of the areas they're talking about. You know, yes, we have more cryptocurrencies available, different things available. But I, I think that. Um, we're seeing, you know, obviously I come from Bitco, like we're seeing a change in that anyway. You know, Bitco is a regulated entity out of a trust of, you know, South Dakota. So if you're going to, you know, use the wall and stuff like that, it, it, you are subject to AML KYC. Um, you know, you're also seeing, you know, big insurance companies. I, I, I just, the, it's becoming legitimate uh, in, in the crypto world. So I think it's kind of not really good to say with the rise of crypto. I think it's just to Andy's point. This is your point, right? This has been happening forever and they're always going to move quickly into the new and emerging quick transfer ways of cash and, and just know that. But it's not, it's not something you can, you can just, you know, blame on, on the availability of cash. Yeah, uh, they've been doing thing, this. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, crime has existed since the beginning of time. Right. And, and it's a good point, Tom, right? I think it's important for the audience to know. And, and George, give me a second here, right? Is that Look, they're studying this stuff, right? The privacy landscape, the, the, the financial institution, you know, rules and guidelines, a regulatory environment. That's, that's what they do, right? And so they have very, they're very astute at understanding how to operate in the, in the landscapes that they need to, and they're ahead of it. And so, yeah, to call out one thing is, is not right, but um, they're going to continue to find ways to monetize their work. So Kolochenko added that this highly competitive salaries that they're being offered now and these other forms of compensation and these cyber organized crime groups are widely spread and have been for a while. But I got to, I got to tell you, I mean, I haven't seen these kind of payments, these, this kind of contracting out. This is huge. This is million dollar, million dollar jobs. I mean, so I have to disagree with that as well, to be honest with you. And then he went on to add that unlike inefficient cybersecurity startups, looking for the next investment round as a universal resort for any past failures, cyber criminals are very well organized, disciplined, and managed with the sole objective of maximizing their short-term profit, as opposed to becoming a unicorn or running a successful IPO in 10 years. So 
this is sort of a bleak outlook on cybersecurity startups in my mind. You know, I don't know if I would have, I just, um, I don't know. And then, and then it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's just like the secret that the bad guys have the advantage, right? Because they don't have to deal with regulators and auditors bringing down their necks every time. And they don't have to deal with, it's not that they're more, they, they're organized in terms of like, yeah, they operate like fortune 500 uh, uh, companies without any, any rules. They have no rules. That's why they're nimble. That's why they're flexible. That's why they're agile. They're faster than we are. I mean, Tom, how do we counter that? I think I think I mean he's just not even like unfortunately I don't think that's a great comparison what he's talking about so it's called organized crime for a reason right it's crime that's organized that that thinks these things out just take anything away what's good away from electronic crimes right let's think about like the drug trafficking right it's very organized who 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 uh, who creates the drugs you know who distributes them you know how does money flow it's very organized that's that's in general. And to your point, they are nimble because they can, they're not as regulated, don't have as many rules. So I actually would counter his argument that, you know, startups and all this don't work because actually startups are nimble, right? They're, they're, not, they're not public companies, they're private. They're, they're looking at some small thing and trying to develop something that the larger world can then adopt. So a big bank, we've all worked at big banks or the government, you know, slower to move, regulated, heavy, heavily regulated industry. A small startup says, oh, I see an issue where, you know, the the criminals are able to do this. I will create this product that can do this to help you track it and do this. And then, and then, you know, get some money and fund and maybe IPO, maybe sell whatever I do, but, or maybe just honestly fizzle out and die, but someone else sees it who's larger and more established and carries the baton. Right. So I, I, I just think, a big check. yeah, right. Now, yeah, exactly. So I just don't, right. I, I think the argument, I, I see kind of what, what's being said. I don't follow that flow, especially, you know, all of us Secret Service twenty years ago, we were seeing these same problems twenty years ago. Like when when I arrested, you know, um, Maxim Kovalchuk and uh, Roman Vega, one in Cyprus, one in Thailand. Right? Those were very organized groups. They all had their piece. They all did their stuff. And even when uh, we we apprehended Roman Vega, he was running the group. Like within days, it, it you know his number two took over and the organization continued. Right? That's just organized crime. It's the same as. A company, right? If a major CEO um, has a heart attack, something happens or steps down immediately, you know, the number two walk steps in, they might go get a new search, but like the, the company doesn't fold, right? It continues on. Yeah, the criminals have their continuity plan too. <laughs> yep, <laughs> exactly. exactly. So Andy, you've got a lot of experience in operations. I mean, is there other technologies out there like SOAR and some other emerging technologies, robotics uh, that are helping us to increase our speed in the socks and in- increase our response time? I mean, I think there's there's definitely a lot out there. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with AI and, you know, a lot of discussion around can he automate, you know, the tier one SOC or things like that. So I think, you know, and SOAR is definitely, you know, able to help with process improvement and efficiencies. I think what, what will be interesting, though, is that you look at the, the macro problem and why those, you know, we need those technologies to help us is because you're, you're, in essence, building, you know, in the SOC world, right, you're building a small tactical unit, you know, that you have to all have the same mindset, same mission, same process, or on the same technology stack, you know, to operate the same way, right? Without fail, you know, repeatedly. Um, and when, you know, with, you know, the example of, you know, organized crime, right? There's, a, there's a, a long institutional set of standards and rules and norms that have grown over decades, right? In these organized crime groups and the criminal infrastructures that, you know, the SOCs battle, right? Even in the nation state realm where the, you know, militaries around the world are fighting this battle against us. They've been established. So every time you stand up a new SOC, right? You have to then instill that from scratch, right? And so I think, you, you'll, you know, the commoditization of that process, right, through AI or through SOAR um, or existing models to help, 
smaller companies or new companies or new socks stand those up is going to be beneficial. So the, the article ends with some recommendations, which uh, everyone always likes to hear on the show. Um, I always get a lot of feedback on the recommendations. I'm, well, what do I do? How do I, how do I uh, you know, fix this problem or how do I mitigate this for me? Uh, and it says that, that uh, in order to minimize the effects of potential extortion attempts, researchers recommend that victims don't respond to sextortion emails. Uh, use haveibeenowned.com when you spell it with a, with a, with a P. The O and owns spelled with a P. Actually, you say pwned. Have I been pwned? Pwned, have I been pwned? pwned? pwned means that someone took your password. Right. And then to find previously breached accounts as well, right? You go to this pwned site. I'm not, I'm not promoting this site. I'm just saying this is what they recommend. Um, and develop a, a ransomware playbook. So this is like, so this is not, when I hear that, this is not for a Fortune 500 company to do. This is for an individual, you know, that potential victim that has a high profile that they should shrink their potential attack surface. Like, do the executives even know what that means? I mean, you know, apply best practices for user permissions, secure email end users, and submit a complaint to the FBI's IC3 <laughs> if you're contacted by criminals. Don't laugh. So, Andy, I mean, how many, how many executives out there have their own ransomware playbook ready to break out when, when, when things go bad? I don't know if it's on the shelf at home, right, in their home office, um, but I, I do think, you know, there's been an increased uh, and heightened awareness around these things, especially in corporate America and high net worth individuals. So I, I think there's, there's an increasing readiness, um, but I do think that, you know, they have to rely on uh, uh, multiple partners to help them get through the scenario. Hey, Tommy, just like everything else, uh, we, we learn this in the Secret Service, obviously, all the time. We just pounded, in, uh, pounded this into us. It's always better to have a plan, right, in case something happens. And I think maybe companies should be responsible for providing this training to their executives so they know what's going to happen. I mean, I don't think it would be successful to someone to have a startup uh, to go out there and provide this training. I don't think individuals would just go ahead and sign up. I don't think a lot of them even realize the risk out there of having a high profile on the internet. But maybe companies should provide this as part of their – uh, employment at the company. Uh, what, do, what do you think? I know uh, we have a social media policy, uh, security policy, like that we go through and like, you know, talk to people. And uh, I've had that multiple companies. Right. And it honestly, I've had, I've you know, unfortunately had executives who have had issues like this happen. And, you know, the first thing I do with them is talk to them and say, okay, I just need the truth. Like what, what's out there, what's going on? Just tell me the truth. How bad is it? And let's address it. And um, there, there was a joke, uh, I think you guys both remember the Secret Service, right, about the, the Secret Service agent who got uh, extorted, and it was, I, I, it's just a myth, but it was something like, you know, as he's leaving Russia, they slide him some black and white photos of, of, of the agent with uh, a woman, and they, they want to, you know, basically extort him, and he slides it back and says, do you have these in color? And it was a joke, right? I mean, like, basically, he doesn't care. But I think that approach, a lot of times, is just like, you know, it's like, you know, great, you got me, right? I mean, like, honestly, just start thinking about, okay, okay. What's worst case scenario if everybody, you know, finds out about it, you just, just start prepping, be ready for it. Just say, okay, I'm not paying you um, no matter how bad it is. Right. right. I'm just going to, I'm just going to own it and just say, you know what? You're right. I did it. Sorry. Uh, should, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, whatever it is, maybe it's, you know, compromising photos or whatever, but we're all human. Uh, you know, uh, it's best to just do that to your point, have a plan, sit down, talk to people. That's usually what I do if it's an executive saying, hey, look, there's a good chance to get out. How bad is it? You know, what, what do you need to think about? And then start getting prepared for it, right? Is it, is it something that you need to notify your family first? You need to notify business partners. You need to like, you know, just get ready for it. If it gets, just assume it's going to get out. Because if you pay it, 
who's going to say that someone else is going to come across it and, and um, have an info or they're not going to say we want more money, right? It's just not going to go away. All right, folks, we're going to have to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away. We'll be right back to talk some more cybersecurity shop after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use, making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skill shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash task force seven. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with my guest host of TS7 Radio, former electronic crime special agents with the United States Secret Service, Tom Pagler and Andy Manillo. So, guys, big article out in BBC News last week by Gordon Carrera uh, about the possibility of uh, Huawei threatening the Five Eyes Alliance. And I thought that was really, really interesting um, uh, for a variety of different reasons. For those of you uh, out there who don't know what the Five Eyes is, it's basically it's an intelligence alliance that uh, comprised of Australia, Canada, New Zealand, uh, the UK, and the United States. 
And uh, this intelligence alliance could be traced all the way back to a post-World War II period when the Atlantic Charter was issued by the Allies to lay out their goals for a post-war world. So during the course of the, the Cold War, the, the Echelon surveillance system was initially developed by the Five Eyes to monitor the communications of the former Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, although it's now used to monitor billions of private communications all the way around the world. And it's, it's a very important intelligence and alliance structure for the English-speaking uh, free world. And I think, you know, I don't know if you guys remember when that came out, Echelon, that was like a big deal. I think it was a 60-minute segment on it or something. It was like, you know, the, the, you know, the United States is spying on you. You know, they're watching everything that you do and everything that you say. And so the article brings up the scenario that it's very possible that we'll start seeing, you know, smart cities popping up all over the globe and things are going to get more technical in terms of the technology in our lives and we're always going to be connected. I mean, people have like chips in their bodies and, and crazy stuff going on, you know, self-driving cars, intelligent power grids, smart home devices. I mean, a lot of this stuff is sort of prevalent now, but it's become almost, you know, uh, every day in everybody's home and everybody's life. And a lot of these services will be delivered over what is called 5G, right? So it'll be much more faster than just, you know, fast data on our phones. Like it's, it's much more than that, but I guess it's, you know, potentially it's a transformational technology in our lives for a variety of different ways. But as, as always with these emerging technologies, there's always this risk, right? We always talk about the risk associated with this stuff when people don't even think about it in business. And then in the consumer side, it's even 10 times, I mean, consumer side's way worse, right? Way worse. There's this dark side that most people don't even think about. And that is what these transformational technologies that, you know, and let's be in truth, really account for a lot of our advances in cybersecurity as well, are end up being run by and reliant on, you know, Chinese companies like Huawei. And um, without getting into all the, you know, maybe I'll do a TF7 radio uh, special extra on, on, on Huawei, but um, that really, because we don't have time to do it right now, but it's a huge story. Obviously, there's a, there's a lot of indictments that have gone down. They're suspected of spying, uh, you know, using their technology. I mean, how secure do you think Americans will feel, Tom, if this technology is embedded in their everyday lives? Well, I, I think uh, just so people understand what 5G really means, I mean, that is like really fast internet all the time. Uh, faster than you have at your home right now. So 5G is basically your cell phone will be faster than your home. So the whole idea is you wouldn't need, you know, cable routers anymore, DSL routers, you know, fiber to your home. You wouldn't need any of that. Basically, you would be lit up all the time everywhere you go. And if you start thinking about smart cities, they're relying on this because this has to be the kind of bandwidth that they can, they can operate with, right? I mean, this is like everything is, is just getting hit. So the idea is like stop these little hubs everywhere. You just light up the world with 5G. Uh, so it is scary when you start thinking um, of it being run by another country. So I, I think what should be happening is starting to look at, I mean, you, you don't want to make it so we don't, we only use internal and stuff like that. You want to allow, you know, healthy competition throughout the world. But you got to start looking at these things saying, okay, what critical infrastructure could be where? I mean, if, we, if our whole city is relying on something and we do have a conflict with one of these other countries and they control basically our connection um that's not good so i think you just have to have backup plans you have to have standards and there stuff like that but look, this is this is definitely something we should start talking about now before we start making these decisions yeah so you know andy would really jump in there on that one because i think 
What I think there's another component that is lost in this conversation at maybe a local level, like, you know, the, at the end of the day, right, when we look at the next generation battlefield, right, of cyber warfare, that exists on the telecommunications infrastructure that we're, we're talking about, right? And, you know, when you look at being able to fight, having to fight an adversary who controls that infrastructure around the world, right? They're not, you know, China has a huge push in Africa, right? Because you can't run fiber, you know, it's, it's cost prohibitive to run, you know, cable across the continent of Africa, right? So everything's wireless, right? You know, and, and China is a big, you know, big push to take over that, that, that infrastructure space, right? right? So if you think about it in terms of cyber warfare or warfare in general, having a government owned infrastructure that they can leverage in a time of warfare, cyber or kinetic um, is really, I think the, the bigger uh, conversation here, right? Because at the end of the day, the five eyes, we don't own, those are privately owned infrastructures, privately owned battlegrounds. So if we find ourselves in a situation where U um, S you know, UK, et cetera, have to then rely on their private sector partners who own and operate that infrastructure against adversaries who already own it and operate it. Right? And that's a very big distinction outside of the privacy landscape and, and how it interacts our daily life. Yeah, when you think about the invent of wireless batteries, now you can, your phone's, you know, your iPhone's gonna get charged without plugging it in and then you're gonna have 5G. I mean, you're gonna be connected 24 seven, 365, man. Like, you know, always open, we never close. I mean, it's going to be nonstop. And so that connectivity also comes with risk as well. And I think the tensions are more than just here at home. Uh, the question seems to be causing a major divide between the members of the five eyes. And I guess for obvious reasons. So the U.S. is campaigning hard among allies to exclude the Chinese telecoms, uh, no, the giant, uh, telecom uh, giant uh, Huawei from d delivering this 5G technology to their other countries. And so we have this quote from Bill Avenina. He's the head of America's National Counterintelligence and Security Center. And he was recently quoted as saying, we have serious concerns over Huawei's obligations to the Chinese government and the danger that poses to the integrity of telecommunication networks in the U.S. and elsewhere. And in Chinese company relationships with the Chinese government aren't like private sector company relationships with governments in the West. So it seems that Australia and New Zealand are, uh, are listening. Uh, they've you know, made some recent statements and they sound pretty negative about Huawei's involvement in the 5G networks over there to uh, varying degrees, I would think. Uh, but Canada is still deciding. And now uh, all the eyes are on the UK and what they're going to do there. So Andy, I got to ask you, man, we, we talk about this a lot. Why do you think that the rest of the world doesn't see the cybersecurity threat the same way as we do here in the United States? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. I think, you know, traditionally the West were the primary targets from the, you know, financially motivated attacks, right? If you think about kind of the evolution of the, the work that the three of us did around protecting the payment system, you know, data breaches occurred all over the world, but the victims were really here, you know, in the U.S., uh, and, and, and as you travel around the world and talk to folks that you see that the types of crimes being committed around the world in some instances are years behind what's what's happening uh, to some some here in the U.S. I think what's happening now, though, is it's a, the, a national state issue that's being highlighted more frequently and folks are just having to, to have that debate. Tom? 
I think, I think England and the UK, I mean, it historically has been a country that has had to survive by having, you know, it was basically an empire, right? I mean, they had their, their fingers everywhere. So, you know, India, Asia, all that. So I think they're just going to be more open to um, a global trade just because they're a smaller um, base and they've, they've become reliant on others, right? They can't do everything internally homegrown. So I think you're going to see definitely the UK um, thinking more globally and, and allowing everybody in. It's just the way historically they've been. To Andy's point in the U.S., we've been a little bit more protectionist because uh, we do get attacked more. I mean, more of, the, more of the victims tend to be with us. They're more, you know, it's, it's the funds coming out of us. We're the ones who have it. So we're thinking that way. I also want to harp again. Like, I, I think the issue is we're, we're probably understanding more because a lot of like Silicon Valley tech is coming out here. We understand how much is going to be reliant on 5G. I mean, just to throw another thing in there with 5G, you're talking about like hardware almost going away, right? All that matters when I'm that well connected is the RAM I have. Can, can I process enough? But all the processing can be happening basically in the cloud, right? I don't need a powerful machine anymore because all that should be happening because it's just as fast as the internal devices now on my hardware. So why would I limit myself to my hardware? I just want something that can get the data to come to me quickly. And so we start thinking about that and you're putting that into all that data being, you know, um, traveling these pipes. That's pretty, pretty significant. Again, um, so I think with the UK, um, I'm going to have an issue where they're going to be wanting to be more broad. Canada's going to probably align with them. I think Australia and New Zealand are more like us, right? We, we've, uh, kind of de defended for ourselves and stuff. So we're just a little more perfect. Uh, yeah, so yeah, this is a problem. I mean, even the experts are saying this is a problem. I've got a quote here from Charles Parton. He's a former British diplomat. He says, worries about the security of UK networks following their exposure to Huawei may make the Five Eyes partners and perhaps others, such as France, Germany, or in Japan, less inclined to cooperate with the UK in, in the future. And he goes on to say, the maintenance of the Five Eyes standard of cybersecurity and telecommunications is a vital strategic and security interest, the loss of which would go far beyond the reduction in intelligence reports exchanged and might lead to the UK being excluded from work on developing future technologies for intelligence uh, collection. So, uh, Tom, this is like huge. This is huge for the UK, especially if other EU countries are going to follow the UK's lead, or they might not. I mean, especially if they don't, this could be seriously dam damaging to the UK. As you just indicated, they might be excluded from these intelligence networks because it's not that we don't trust the, the, the people in the UK and the UK government and don't trust the systems that they're using. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, a bigger thing than that too, though. If you're in the UK, I mean, you've relied on the 5 I up to this point, but if you actually align a different way, who knows? Maybe they'll start getting involved more with other, other global players. So I, I think there's more to that. I think it's going to be uh, more political than, than we think. Uh, I do agree. Like, how can you, if we all rely on each other's systems and then one of the systems is, you know, on uh, what we would consider uh, a network controlled by a potential enemy or someone that we don't trust, then how do you allow them in the fold? That's not going to happen. But at the same time, the uh, UK's got to make a decision what's, what's right for them. So this could be a lot bigger than we think. This could be, a, you know, honestly, the... Uh, the end of the five I. It could be uh, you know uh, new new changes, new new things switching around. I mean, it's just something I think we have to address, start getting ahead of. Especially these five groups, they need to start saying, okay, how are we going to do this? Proceed? Are we gonna, are we going to proceed together? If not, this might be the end of it. So, Andy, the disagreement over supply chain technologies ends the five I. 
I mean, you I mean certainly, you know, we wouldn't want to share that information if we could, we couldn't trust the networks. Right. So, um, I think you're going to see, you know, like Tom said, the political debate, I think you'll, you know, you could see potentially, um, segregated networks in the sense that you might have, um, information that can be shared over, you know, you know, networks that we've already proven that are, are, are secure. Um, and, and if there's a consumer, you know, component to this that that's not, you know, tied here to the, to the information exchange, maybe, but um, I don't see where the, where the other four, four eyes of the five eyes, right, would, uh, would want to share um, in that entrusted network. Right, guys, in the final analysis, I think there has to be, especially with these five eye countries and some other countries like France or Germany, Japan, some of these countries that we do share information with, it has to be, and people have to adopt sort of a standard tech stack in, in terms of the security. So we all understand and come to an agreement on, you know, a best practice in terms of the systems that we use. And this includes all communication technologies too. I mean, to the point where we, we can manage some of these supply chain risks, they can be controlled to some degree and, and mitigated to the best of our ability. And I know there's people out there laughing right now, and there's cybersecurity professionals laughing out there when I say mitigate, you know, supply chain risk. Um, look, I know the, the, uh, I know the challenge, right? I know the obstacles that we face, but that doesn't mean we lay down and, and, and just, just die here, right? We got to do something. We can't just use companies that we highly suspect of, uh, uh using their technology to spy on, uh, other governments and other, con uh, companies. So like, it's just like the election systems. I think, I think it comes down to trust. And if you don't trust the systems you're dependent on to protect our way of life, then I just see things getting really really bad, uh, really quick. So, hey guys, thanks for being on the show with me this evening. Uh, this is getting to be more fun as each week passes. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us, George. Thanks, George. Okay, folks, we've got to bounce up out of here, but before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.